This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. Two years ago today, life in the U.S. was going to change as we know it, and it did. CDC confirmed the first case of COVID in the country came from samples taken in Washington state. Since then, the virus has spread everywhere, infecting tens of millions of people and killing more than 850,000 so far. So today we're taking stock of the COVID-19 pandemic two years later. We'll explore what we've learned and the progress that's been made in trying to save lives and slow the spread of the virus. Can we eliminate it? Some European countries are considering drastically easing restrictions, learning to live with the virus. Should we do that here? We'll check in with a COVID long hauler and we'll look into what can be done to move us along to the end and uh, what the end looks like. We start with the man who has become, for better or worse, the face of the COVID pandemic here in America, Dr. Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden. Dr. Fauci, welcome back to the Coronavirus Daily podcast. So last week, uh, an FDA official caused some confusion and consternation when she said something along the lines of every one of us is going to get Omicron. Now, is that what was meant, that we're all going to get sick? No. That absolutely is not what it's meant. And the operative word that you just mentioned is getting sick. And what I believe it was Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the FDA said that at a hearing, what she was referring to is that Omicron is such a highly transmissible virus that it will essentially be exposed to virtually everybody because of its ability to transmit from person to person. What will happen is that everyone likely will be exposed to it and maybe everyone will get quote infected, but infected doesn't mean you get symptoms and infected doesn't mean that you get sick. We know very, very clearly from good data with Delta and there's no reason to believe it's gonna be any different with Omicron that when you look at the people who are unvaccinated versus those who are vaccinated, the likelihood of getting infected, of requiring hospitalization, or of dying is much, much, much higher in an unvaccinated person than a vaccinated person, particularly a vaccinated person who's boosted. So what she was referring to is that maybe we're gonna get exposed and many, many, many of us will get infected even if we're vaccinated, but vaccination will protect you for the most part against getting seriously ill. Let's talk about the idea of this being milds because milds can mean different things and when we talk about you know exposure versus everybody's going to get it people can get the idea and some have that hey you know what i'll get this thing i'll get it over with it's gonna be fine because we're all gonna get it anyways but milds to me means you know oh a few days at home sore throat whatever milds to doctors can mean the worst flu of your life but you don't have to go to the er right so it can still be really really bad oh absolutely i mean i think i'm glad you brought that question up because it really is the source of some confusion. If you look on a case-by-case basis in an otherwise normal population, there is no doubt that Omicron is less severe with regard to a requirement for hospitalization, for the duration of the stay in the hospital, for the requirement for mechanical ventilation. However, when you get so many people infected because it's so much of a highly transmissible virus, 
that you were going to get a proportion of those individuals who are going to get seriously ill. It will be much more weighted to the elderly and for those with underlying conditions. So you don't want people to feel that just because in general, Omicron may be inherently less severe than Delta, that everybody's going to be just fine with Omicron. That's not the case. You're going to see people who are hospitalized, and they're going to be people who die. And that's the reason why we say the good news is that on a population level, it's less severe. But you still need to protect yourself because you don't know. I mean, there are so many people with high risk factors. For example, the elderly. I mean, I am an elderly individual. <laughs> By the years, the number of years, I'm relatively healthy, but on the basis of my age alone, I'm at a much higher risk of a severe outcome. People with obesity, with diabetes, with heart disease, all of those people are at greater risk. So we don't want to be complacent. We want to accept gladly that Omicron is less severe in general, but we can't be overly complacent about it. Doctor, let's let's turn to these uh, new antiviral pills that have been approved. We've had people on the show saying that these are going to be real game changers, uh, changes, but uh, yet uh, we've heard from plenty of doctors who say you can barely get them. And some people were under the impression, you, you know, you just get COVID, run to the pharmacy and you'd be fine. That's not the way it's, it's going to work, is it? Well, that's not the reality of where we are now with the pills. First of all, let me just make a couple of factual statements that people need to understand. It is always, always better to prevent an infection than to get infected and having to treat the infection. If you are infected, we now have some very good drugs that if given earlier enough in the course of the infection can go a long way to preventing you from progressing to severe disease leading to hospitalizations and deaths. For example, Paxlovid, the drug by Pfizer, diminishes the likelihood of you're going to be hospitalized or dying by about 89 to 90% if given very early in the first three to five days. Less effective is malnupiravir, the Merck drug, which is only about 30% effective. You're right, currently, the supply of drugs does not meet a demand for it but the federal government has contracted with the companies to markedly increase the availability, for example, of Paxlovid to double the original contract. But, there, but there's more than just a, a supply uh, and demand issue. You mentioned it in, in passing about there's a small window, right, of, of three to five days, I guess, depending on, on the med, uh, where these pills are going to be truly uh, effective. And yet, as you know, going on now the, the third year of this pandemic, it is still really difficult in many parts of the country to get rapid tests. It's difficult to do a whole bunch of things that would allow somebody who is positive for COVID to A, find out that they're positive to begin with, and then be able to get access to these, to these pills. I mean, that's a problem. Yes, it, there's no doubt you can't walk away from things that in the real world are problems, but you do the best you can and you try to improve on that 
and mitigate the effects of the problem. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, as you know, most recently, that the administration is giving out a half a billion tests that are free to individuals, soon followed by another half a billion for a total of a billion tests. One can now get tests at 20,000 testing centers, as well as distribution in different pharmacies. There has now been initiated an online capability of ordering tests to be delivered to your own home. So although that wasn't available a couple of months ago, right now, it makes it much easier. So we're moving rapidly towards a greater availability of tests, particularly point of care tests. And with that, the opportunity to move ahead with treatment for an early infection. The vaccine makers are talking about Omicron-specific vaccines. They say maybe springtime, maybe March, and then the criticism is, well, too little, too late. We would need needed them now. Where is the place in the world for the Omicron-specific vaccine? How does that end up getting used? Well, I'm not so sure that we actually will need an Omicron-specific vaccine. We are developing one just in case we do need it. But one thing we do know that the original vaccine was made against the ancestral Wuhan strain. And yet when we had alpha and beta and delta and now Omicron boosting after proper vaccination provides quite good protection. So although we may ultimately need to go on to a Omicron specific boost, it may not be necessary. We're working for a more universal coronavirus vaccine. In other words, one that doesn't chase after each and every variant. So a, so a, a pan-variant vaccine, right? That would cover all, all, your, all your bases. Was the reason why that wasn't initially developed because in the middle of a crisis, it was easier to go after the spike protein? No, no, not at all. First of all, you had to go after the virus you were dealing with. That just makes sense. Uh, it's much easier and much quicker. And as you probably know, the development of a vaccine was in an unprecedented record period of time, which has already saved literally hundreds of millions of lives already with the vaccine. That was the first step. The development of a universal coronavirus vaccine still needs to get over some scientific hurdles. Talk to the this is never ending crowd, because I heard an interview the other day with somebody and they were they were at the airport and they were going to get on their plane. And the soundbite was from this woman saying, you know what, I'm going to put on my mask and I just know that I'm never, ever not going to have to wear a mask at the airport again. This is going to happen for the rest of my life. We know all the different scenarios, other variants that could pop up. But really, are we going to have to be wearing masks at the airport for the rest of our lives? No. The answer to that is clear. And the answer is no that this is not gonna last forever. I think there will be circumstances during many outbreaks, like maybe in the influenza season where people will elect to wear masks. I think people realize now something that we never realized, but that many countries, particularly in Asia, realize that well beyond and well before COVID-19, there were many people in, in foreign countries, Japan, China, Korea, and places like that, that during the winter season, when there were respiratory 
diseases going around, they would voluntarily wear a mask. It wasn't mandated, but they would voluntarily do that. That could be the case sometime with us, but I don't think we are going to be wearing masks for the rest of our lives. I think that is an over-exaggeration. You know, uh, we had you on in the very beginning uh, of the pandemic, and one of us asked you at the time about whether we will be prepared for the next one. And I remember your answer was along the lines of, let's get through this one <laughs> first. And, and fair enough. But now that we're going into the third year of this, are there things that we have learned, that you have learned from this experience that does prepare us better for what will inevitably be, at some point, another pandemic. Yeah, we've learned some lessons that are productive lessons, and we've learned some very chilling lessons. We've learned that the science that got us to be able to develop a vaccine so rapidly, in unprecedented speed, less than a year from the time of the identification of the virus to the time you're putting a highly effective and safe vaccine into the arms of individuals. We've learned that we need global cooperation and collaboration and solidarity since global pandemics require a global response. The other thing that we've learned that we've gotta make sure that we keep political divisiveness out of our response to the outbreak because one of the greatest impediments to a comprehensive response is when public health principles are severely influenced by ideology and political persuasion. The common enemy is the virus, not each other. Dr. Anthony Fauci, back with us. Some European countries are debating whether to cut back on many, if not all, COVID restrictions as they look to adjust their strategy to simply learning to live with the virus. Britain says masks will no longer be required coming up in England. Should the U.S. do the same soon? Dr. Jean Marazzo, professor of medicine and director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So uh, over in the U.K., they're judging that the surge has uh, plateaued. The peak is kind of over. Worst is behind us. You know, pick uh, your line. Is it too soon or, or do we need off ramps to take eventually? Yeah, boy, thanks for having me, uh, guys. I, 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 one thing I'm very nervous about doing with this crazy virus is making predictions. Um, but since you asked me, um, I will say that I think that we will know more in the next week or so. What's happening in the United States is really interesting, right? We have, again, these regional patterns that reflect probably what people experienced with the Delta wave and what the population's immunity was due to Delta. So New York has had an Omicron uh, surge that is really probably starting to come down the region and there. We, on the other hand, are not peaking yet. We probably have at least another week of this pain. So what can you say countrywide? I think there's a whole bunch of little mini pandemics going on in the US. It's not as small as the UK and it's so much more complicated. What's the situation on the ground where you are in Alabama? Yeah, you know, we are, um, I would say, not rocketing up the way that we were, but we're still seeing a lot of infections. So I can tell you in our hospital, which has 1,200 beds in Birmingham, you know, we have now around 200 plus patients, unfortunately, um, about 50 patients in the intensive care unit, most of whom are on ventilators. Most of those patients are unvaccinated patients. So we unfortunately do not have the vaccination coverage that every other place or many other places have. The problem with Omicron though, is that vaccination is 
not preventing people from getting infected, right? It, we are seeing my faculty, our staff, that's, that's really the big challenge for places right now. You get infected, even if you were vaccinated and you don't have a severe infection, you still gotta stay home. So the challenges we're facing really are severe disease in a large proportion of our population who are unvaccinated, plus the fact that even the people who are vaccinated are getting slammed with this. And it's not fun to get, even if you're fully vaccinated. So, and then the other problem just to mention is we have a record number of children hospitalized, over a hundred in the state. And we're one of several states now that have set records. So that's really not a good situation. Real quick, do we need to be careful when we talk about peaks? Because some people might understand it as a cliff instead. It's a peak and then there's a slope, right? So even if once we get past the peak, you're only a little bit less likely to get infected than you were two days ago. It's not just like, oh, I, next I, Tuesday's I, great, I folks. See, I see you've also learned some very good epidemiology um, uh, interviewing people during this pandemic. So that's great. You're absolutely right. Although what's interesting about Omicron is that the CDC and others have referred to these surges as more of an ice pick. Uh, patterns. So there does seem to be a rather precipitous drop compared to Delta. But again, predictions are dangerous with this virus. So thank you. <laughs> All right, Dr. Jean Marazzo, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, again, thanks. Coming right up after this short break, it's not just the hundreds of thousands of Americans killed by COVID that will form the legacy of this pandemic. It's also the potentially millions of people left dealing with long COVID symptoms months after infections. We will get into that next. While most of us are done with this pandemic and beyond ready to move on from the last two years, there is a huge group of people who could number in the millions who can't move on from COVID because they are still living with the disease almost every day. COVID long haulers report experiencing a host of symptoms for weeks to months after testing positive for the virus. These include a change in sense of smell or taste, persistent brain fog. Are we closer to helping these people recover? Diana Barrent is the founder of Survivor Core, a support group for COVID survivors and is a long hauler herself. Diana, are we getting any closer to helping or understanding the science behind people in your position? Well, I wish I could say, I wish I had better news. Um, the number of people who are suffering from long COVID in the, this country is staggering. According to the CDC, one out of three cases ends up with long COVID. And we're not talking about people who are hospitalized. We're, I mean, also people who are hospitalized, but we're talking about people who had very, very mild cases. Um, one of our members actually took her own life this past spring after a two-year battle with long COVID, which came from an asymptomatic case. On the good news, um, I did just come back from five days at the Mayo Clinic where I met with their post-COVID care center and they are light years ahead of the rest of the world on long COVID. And hopefully by working together, we can get that information into the hands of practitioners around the country because people are desperately in need of help. And when we're talking about the types of symptoms people are having, brain fog can sound like a hangover. It's really cognitive dysfunction. You know, we started off thinking about this disease as a respiratory disease and quickly understood it as a also a vascular disease. And I think that we will look back on it as in many ways, a neurological disease. 
because we are seeing people, our patients are having such severe issues. They're having Parkinsonian-like tremors and neuropathic pain that mimics advanced diabetes. Um, they have COVID-induced diabetes, lupus, you know, adrenal fatigue, erectile dysfunction. Um, remember, every organ that relies on blood, on blood flow, can be damaged. Diana, and, when, yes, when... Every single organ does. Right. Now, you had COVID. When did you actually get COVID? I was actually got one of the first confirmed cases in the country. I contracted it on March 9th, 2020. Um, I did suffer from long COVID for a number of months, and I am thankfully on the other side. But as I always say, I am a far better spokesperson than I am an example, because most have not been as lucky as I have in my recovery. And from your own point of view, how bad was the long haul effect? Oh, I was sick for months and months and had a full relapse months, you know, um, you, even if you think you're in the clear, some of these symptoms don't come on for a couple of months. Um, so, I mean, even with my mild case of COVID, I ended up with a diagnosis of COVID onset glaucoma. I had encephalitis. I, you know, was seeing, I, I went through Mount Sinai's post-COVID care center at the end of August of 2020, right when it opened. Um, another example, my son had a mild case very early, actually before me. We only found out later on that he had had it through antibody testing. And he was 12, 12 years old. And nine months later, one of his front adult teeth fell out with no blood loss from vascular damage from COVID. And that is happening to people around the country. You said the Mayo Clinic is light years ahead of everybody else. What are they saying when it comes to, to treatment or trying to figure out what to do with this? So what they've done is they've looked at what's called the phenotyping and trying to cluster the different symptoms so that there are different paths to recovery depending on what subset of symptoms you have. And they have, you know, they've worked off of their other chronic disease um, studies and figured out some of the methods to help people, you know, how do you help neuropathic pain? How do you help these, um, you know, these headaches, the psychiatric issues? You know, there are, uh, you know, depression comes with this. So how do you monitor for that? Um, how can you help these individual symptoms? You know, I'm not saying that they have a magic cure. We're not there yet, but we are at the point where we are pushing for therapeutics. Um, we need to be beyond the stage of just reporting symptoms. The NIH was given $1.15 billion last February to study long COVID, and they are pouring all of that money into basically a big data project. There's no goal of therapeutics in all of that money. So we need institutions like Mayo and Yale who are doing leading work on, in this area to we need them funded we need you know we need that money to go towards research to get therapeutics to get help to people people are in pain they are suffering and they are you know they're losing hope diana Brent, founder of survivor core that's a support group for covid survivors and uh, long haulers what does a post-COVID world look like, given how chaotic many stretches of this pandemic have been and the massive disruptions it's caused? Getting back to normal is going to be a huge challenge because, really, what is normal? 
And what role will the states and the feds have bringing us back to that sense of uh, normalcy? Andy Slavich served as senior advisor for COVID response in the Biden administration, also was the former head of Medicare and Medicaid in the Obama administration, has the podcast now in the bubble. So, Andy, as lo- you look forward to the rest of uh, 2022, where do you think we're going to end up? Well, good to be back and good to be with you. Um, look, I think we are probably already on the tail end of the um, the downward slope, I should say, of the Omicron wave. And with with a, with, a, with hope and a little bit of luck, um, we will have a lot of broad immunity between vaccinations and Omicron in this country. How much immunity, I think, will be an important question. Um, but I suspect that you know most of the people I talk to think that we are going to have a quiet spring and summer and uh, that, that while we may face more variants, uh, we will be, by the time we get to um, another wave, potentially, just like we do with the flu, it'll hopefully be, be fall and winter. We'll have another round of maybe even better vaccines. We'll have antivirals and a number of tools so that you know, COVID becomes less and less and less disruptive as life goes on. That's the hope. Yeah, I was going to say, so let's say we get to the fall uh, and looking into that crystal ball that none of us really want to look into because it's dangerous, as we've discovered. But nonetheless, let's try to look into it in the fall. uh, People not needing to much wear masks, not worrying about going to work at an office if they so choose or if their employer, as it's probably the case, their employer demands that they do. Uh, Are all these things going to go back to what we used to think of as normal life? Yeah, if only we didn't have to have jobs and show up in offices and yeah, stores. Yeah, I'm, I'm for that. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm for yeah. that. <laughs> it didn't, didn't seem to work. Yeah. One, one side effect of the pandemic. But look, here's the thing about, about masks is they're pain in the butt. Nobody likes wearing them. Uh, and yet, if you really want to protect yourself, if you're in a, if you're, or someone who's immunocompromised to have cancer or, uh, or, or some other place where you feel vulnerable, that is a great form of protection, a well-fitting mask. But as things ease, as there's less COVID around, uh, there will be less reason to wear it. And as, uh, as people are more tolerant taking risks, being, in, being inside, being in crowds, being in bars, and are less worried about COVID because of the other tools we have, you know, they'll be less inclined. And you know, I think what we have is a, a country that basically based on cultural differences, I think we'll probably have communities that with uh, when there's some COVID around, there'll be high amounts of mask wearing. Uh, we drive two hours in any direction and find a place where uh, there's a sign in the restaurant that says no masks allowed. Uh, and that's 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 as much a cultural practice over time that'll that'll take hold, I think, a little bit differently in different places. We know that other variants can come. Is it also, and and look, they can come from wherever. We don't know where they're going to sprout up. But we are also in a race. If we are going to have like a quiet spring and summer, is it this, use this six to eight months, really try and vaccinate like the world to head off as much of that new variation as you can? Is that a goal? Wouldn't that be nice? Um, Well, look, actually, uh, it might surprise people to to listen to, to know this, but We've now vaccinated about 60% of the globe. Uh, and we have, we've given out 10 billion shots globally. Um, so we continue to gain on it. And you know, between that and prior infection, uh, you, know, you do have a fair amount of immunity um, out there. But uh, the most remote places, uh, the most rural places in the world uh, that require a lot of effort 
you know, still haven't been vaccinated. A lot of those places are in Africa. Some of those places are South America, parts of Asia, uh, and guess what? Parts of the U.S. Uh, as well. And some of that is also just facing down people who are still not sure that they want to get vaccinated. Um, and, you know, that's a problem. Those that, are the ones that stay. They still need more info, right? <laughs> yeah, they're doing their own homework. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, the, but the, the, the truth is, actually, um, people talk about it in political terms and geographic terms. The most pronounced way that this occurs is by age, by far. I mean, if you show me an 85-year-old, I don't care if they're Democrat, Republican, rural or urban, they're vaccinated. Show me a 25-year-old and it's a toss-up. Show me a 10-year-old and they're probably not vaccinated. Andy Slavitt there, former senior advisor for COVID response, Biden administration. He's got that podcast in the bubble. Andy, thanks for coming back. You can find this Odyssey original and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.